You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Um, Pick back up in Genesis, continuing our summer series through the book of Genesis, really a survey. Um, You can't unpack 50 chapters uh, across eight weeks, really. Uh, So we're surveying and dropping anchor in important places as we go. This morning we'll begin uh, begin in Genesis 11, Genesis chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'll give you a minute to find that. Uh, It's at the very front, if you're curious. Um, Also, it's uh, on the app, as well are uh, the quotes and other verses I'll be referencing this morning under sermon notes, so you can follow along there uh, if you want. I don't know how many of you have lived other places. I know many of you have, as we have. Uh, It's nice to live in Georgia where it gets warm but not hot. Um, This last week, my mom sent me uh, a screenshot of their temperature at 630 p.m. their time, and it was 112 degrees in uh, north central Texas. So uh, I sent her a screenshot of ours, it was 69. So I win. That's just to give you time to find Genesis 11. Let's pick up in Genesis 11 with chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 27. Verse 27. I'll read 11:27 through chapter 12, verse 9, and then pray for us. Let's read and turn our attention and our hearts to God's Word. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, And his daughter-in-law, Sarah, the wife of his son, Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation." And I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. 
The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Let's, uh, let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have before us your word. God, your authoritative, infallible, trustworthy, sufficient word. God, speak to us this morning. Speak to us as a church, as a fellowship gathered in Christ's name. And Father, speak to us as individuals, as men and women who belong to you, and as people who may not yet belong to you, God, but are curious, or wrestling, or wondering what it really means to be a Christian. Father, where there are wounds in this room, I pray that, I pray that you would give healing. Where there's anxiety, and uncertainty, God, you'd give peace. Father, where there's a sense of despair, give hope. Father, I ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There is uh, a place in the Gospels where Jesus in John 6 makes very clear that no one comes to him unless his Father in heaven draws them. No one comes to him unless his father in, draws them. In other words, no one comes to Jesus unless there's a, a calling by God. And that's what we're looking at this morning and what we're going to hear a word from the Lord about is what are some of the characteristics of the call of God when it comes to your life? What are some of the characteristics of the call of God in general as we see it playing out here? I'm going to give you five this morning. There are many aspects of the call of God, but these five are so clearly seen here, it's difficult to miss them. I usually have three points and go about 40 or 45 minutes, so don't worry. I took that into account when I came up with five, so we'll move on uh, with the first two or three fairly quickly, spend a little more time with four and five. The first is this, that the call of God is necessary. The call of God in your life is necessary. That's what I just referenced when I shared with you Jesus' comment from John chapter 6, verse 44, where he said, no one, no one, no one. That means not the children of the hyper-spiritual and hyper-faithful to God, not children of privilege, not the poor simply because they're poor, not Westerners or Americans or Asians. No one comes to Jesus, except God calls them. Part of that is because of how seriously sin has affected our lives. We are, in a sense, left without hope apart from the initiating grace and love of God. Look back at Genesis 11. 
Here's what's interesting. Jake mentioned this last year, but you see the downward spiral of sin from Genesis 1 through Genesis 11. And in a sense, um, as N.T. Wright says, Genesis uh, 11 in the Tower of Babel, man is, is building a tower up to God. God looks down and laughs and instead comes down to man in the calling of Abram. But there's one bright spot. There's one bright spot in Genesis 1 through 11. One ray of hope I just want to briefly read to you from Genesis 4, 25 and 26. Genesis chapter 4, 25 and 26. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. That's a, a Hebrewism, a Hebrew way of saying people began to worship the Lord. It was the family of Seth that was the ray of hope, that was the bright spot in this downward spiral of sin from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11. It is Seth. And through Seth's family, that people are remembering God, are worshiping God as creator. It's through the line of Seth that God comes to Noah and eventually to Abraham. But look at where Seth's family has gotten by verse 31 of chapter 11. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. You know, Terah's name means moon, and Ur of the Chaldeans on the plains of, of ancient Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, and you can go and actually see the ruins still of Ur in Iraq today. I wouldn't advise going right now. Um, but many have gone and seen it in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, um, and hopefully we'll be able to do that uh, continued work and joy of sightseeing there again in the future, this biblical location. But Ur of the Chaldeans was the center of lunar worship, of moon worship in that day. This family that was such a great hope, the family through whom the people began to call on the name of the Lord again and worship the creator God had descended into idol worship. And if you're curious, Joshua 24, 2 says this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Joshua 24, 2. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. This light had gone out. This ray of hope had fallen flat. They were pagan worshipers. Pagan worshipers. And what's interesting is uh, if you see in verse 30 of chapter 11, you find this statement. Now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. That isn't thrown in there accidentally. That isn't there just as a side. Oh, guess what about Sarai? She couldn't have children. The writer of Genesis puts it in there for us to understand the utter hopelessness of mankind at this time. 
Renowned Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann in his commentary on Genesis says this, the barrenness of Sarah, Sarah's name will end up being changed to Sarah and Abram's to Abraham. I don't think you'll get those confused this morning, so I'm going to largely stick with them as they are in the text at this point. But Brueggemann says the barrenness of Sarah is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. And any of you in here and in a room like this, there will be a number. Whoever walked through the pain of infertility, of yearning biologically to have children of your own and not being able to do that. Whoever that is that answers things on your phone thinks I'm talking to her. I guess I'm the only one that heard that. I shouldn't have said anything. Understand this metaphor of hopelessness. That the human race is in a mess it can't get itself out of. This text tells us there is no foreseeable future, Brueggemann says. There is no human power to invent a future. The human race in human history has just hit a dead end here with the family of Terah. It's over. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, God speaks. God speaks and there's hope. God speaks because it is necessary for God to speak. God speaks because if he doesn't speak, you and I will do nothing but live a life fueled by our own self-interest, our own selfishness, and our own sin, where even our good acts are done. Ultimately, as we talked about several weeks ago, out of fear or pride when you boil it down. God has to come. God has to move first. And some of you are in a situation in life right now where God's moved in your life redemptively. You belong to him. The Holy Spirit dwells in you and you've walked with him, but you're facing something right now that feels as hopeless as Sarah's barrenness did to her. As hopeless as God's promises given in Genesis 1 and 2, look now in Genesis 11. And you need God to move. Ever been there? Ever been at the end of your rope where you just said, God, I don't know what else I can do. You're never in a better place to experience the movement of God in your life than when you can say that to God and mean it. I'm at the end of believing I have the strength to create something. I'm at the end of thinking that my gifts, my talents, my goodness, my will, my tenacity can accomplish this. And God, I'm trusting you. The call of God is necessary. It's necessary. The call of God is also personal. It's also personal. Look back at 12 verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. He doesn't come down to everyone. He doesn't even come down to the whole family. He comes to Abram and he says, you, Abram, go. You go yourself from where you are. And this is just an interesting side note, but if you look at Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, in Acts chapter 7, when he is uh, being accused of blasphemy before the high priest, Stephen says this in verse 2, brothers and sisters, Acts chapter 7, listen to me. 
the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Now listen to this. While he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I'll show you. So there was an encounter we don't have recorded here in Genesis that happened back in Ur of the Chaldeans when they were still in Mesopotamia that Abram had with God. And he and his clan and his father and his brothers and his nephews and nieces and their uh, servants and their entourage, they began moving toward Canaan. But they stopped. They settled. They stopped short of full obedience and faithfulness. Who knows why? Maybe the Canaanites looked too strong to them, too populous at that time to enter Canaan. But they stopped. We don't know how the story might have gone differently had they just kept going. But God in his graciousness comes back again to Abram. And to Abram personally, he says, you, Abram, you go. This morning, God is saying to some of you, to some of you men in here, you be faithful. You stop whining and taking second place and drafting off your wife's spirituality and you start being a man, being a man of faith and leading in your family. You step out of what the culture says is fine. Some of you, God may be calling to personally this morning, and you've never heard it before. Thus was the call of a man in the late 1770s. One of the biographies I have in my office is actually a two-volume biography, and the title is The Growth of a Soul. The growth of a soul. I just tell you this because you never know what happens, what is the ultimate result of your saying yes to God in unhindered obedience and faith at this time in our day in your life when God calls. Abraham didn't see all that God had promised him. I'm jumping ahead now, but he didn't see that. But God did it none the less. This young man in the late 1770s in England was preparing for his wedding later that day. And this wasn't current day, right? This was back when the, the land was real, the air was clean, and the streams were full of fish, right? So you got up and you went to work, uh, and then you got married later in the day. You didn't get a wedding day off, uh, and then a week or two to go on a honeymoon. You certainly didn't get paternity leave. So this young man who was a stonemason is working with some straw early in the day and something keeps going through his mind. His spirit is deeply, deeply troubled because there was a phrase that he would learn comes from scripture that kept rattling around in his brain. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He couldn't shake this statement. Because some weeks before, another young man named Charles Wesley had been traveling around his area preaching. One of the founders of Methodism and these Methodist groups were, were meeting and were praising God and sharing life together, following Christ. And he had somehow come to be familiar with this phrase through the preaching of Wesley and this day it would not let go of him. And I'm telling you, when God's dealing heavily with something, 
like that with you, minutes seem like hours, and hours can seem like years. And so this cloud was over him. Until finally, he said he, he knelt down this, this realization that he was about to start a family. He was about to be a husband. And he couldn't say that for him, he and his house will serve the Lord. He couldn't say that like some of his Methodist neighbors could at that time. Like so many who'd given their life as a result of the revivalistic preaching of Charles Wesley could. And he was feeling the weight and the consequences of bringing up children in a family where he had no concern for the Lord. And what he didn't know at that point was that God was calling him through a single line of scripture as a result of preaching in his area. And the biographer says at one point he knelt down and on his knees alone, face to face with God, cried out to God gave himself to God in response to God's coming to him, understanding the personal weight of saying, as for me, me, I will serve the Lord. My family, my household will serve the Lord. And he said this, one day we see as if we have never seen before. That's what happens personally when the, call, when the call of God comes to you. You see as if you've never seen before. You hear as if you've never heard before. The gospel becomes real to you. And you reach out in passionate grasp of God as a drowning man does for a safety float in the ocean. James Taylor, not the musician, but the stonemason, didn't know that he would end up being the great, great, great grandfather of Hudson Taylor, who would go on to be, and if you were in our church history class this week, you should uh, be remembering at least the name and some of the details, who would go on to be one of the great missionaries to China. And there are Christians today in Hong Kong and Taiwan and Beijing and into the interior of mainland China and Christian families in America who trace their roots back to the missionary ministry and life of Hudson Taylor and his wife, the great, great, great grandson of James Taylor. You never know what God's going to do when he comes to you personally and says, follow me. The personal aspect of this is the reason that we don't believe just big gatherings like this is enough. It's it's the reason that many of you are grouped together now, week in and week out in home groups where you discuss what we're learning on Sunday morning. It's the reason why in fall we'll have new and more groups meeting on Sunday mornings, encouraging you guys to make Sunday again the Lord's Day. You can't make it anything. It is the Lord's Day but to begin honoring it more as the Lord's Day rather than as Sunday fun day or just a good morning to recover from Saturday's activities so that you can slide in and hopefully stay awake through worship. The call of God is necessary. It's personal. It is also powerful, though. It is also powerful. It does not leave us where we were when it finds us. Look at 12.1 again. The Lord says to Abram, go. Go yourself is accurate. Go yourself from your country, your people, and your father's household. Now look at this next line. To the land I will show you. 
He doesn't know yet. He doesn't know yet where he's going. To the land I will show you. Now, men, Abram was married. And wives like details, don't they? How many of you men would say your wife likes details? Cowards. Yes. <laughs> How many of you ladies would say that your husband sometimes fails to share all the details you would like? There's the honest crew. Yeah. Can you imagine this conversation? Now, they're, they're nomads, right? So they're, they're used to being wanderers, but they're wandering around a general area here in Haran. They'd already moved once from Ur of the Chaldees. And women, most women are not particularly prone to packing up and moving stuff over and over and over. And he comes, he says, Sarah, I've got great news. What's that, Abe? Start packing up the tents. We're moving. Oh, again? Yes, I like it here. The palm trees are big. There's water, there's shade. I know. But the place we're going is better. That's awesome. Where are we going? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? He didn't tell me. Who didn't tell you? God. God who? I didn't get his last name. But he said go. He said he would show us when we get there. I bet she was thrilled with him. I bet the rest of the day they had sweet communion and fellowship as a married couple. Go, I'll show you. And part of what he's doing here is saying, you're not ready for all that's ahead. You have to follow me by faith, Abram. There's no other way. You can't give yourself half to me. You can't ask me to just come along on your journeys and be your assistant. You follow me in faith and in trust. And along the way, you're going to be changed. It's a, it's a volitional call. It's a call to surrender his will to God. It's the same call that comes to your life and mine today. I don't want part of you. I'll have all of you or none of you because that's the only way I give myself to you. You get all of me or none of me. It's a volitional call. It's a call to surrender, surrender your will to God. And that's hard. We want to say, God, I'll follow you, but do I have to give up this? Can I keep doing this? What about this? And God says, just follow me and trust me. He gives Abraham no link to paste in the maps, no address to put in ways to find the shortest distance in case uh, there's a, a donkey caravan wreck on the way. There's a, an exceptional little book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. It's actually in our bookstore out here. Subtitle is An English Professor's Journey into Christian Faith. And it is a, a beautiful picture of what it's like for modern American skeptics to come to genuine, regenerate faith in Christ today. It's not often that we sit down and we've got the Romans wrote on a card and we go through that and they go, oh, awesome, let's pray now. I was getting gas yesterday and uh, one of my colleagues from another church had placed a card on the gas pump there and it had like the Romans road and his number where you could call him if you wanted to. And I appreciate his sincerity, but I really do doubt his, his method in our day and the effectiveness of it. In 
Rosaria Butterfield's book, you meet her as a well-trained, well-educated PhD in English literature, serving in a place of prominence in an Eastern university, also as the director of the Department of Gender Studies, a practicing lesbian living with her partner in an affluent area. And you kind of follow quickly her two-year journey into conversion and the triumphs and the struggles following it. But when it comes to her conversion, she writes this. That night, that night, toward the end of this two-year journey of Scripture and, and, and learning to trust Christians and the witness of a church eventually, that night I prayed and asked God if the message was for someone like me too. I viscerally felt the living presence of God as I prayed. Jesus seemed present and alive. I knew that I was not alone in my room. Some of you have felt that before in prayer. This was the first time for Butterfield. I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God, that he would change my heart. And if he was real and I was his, I prayed that he would give me the strength of mind to follow him. See, she knows that giving herself to Christ is going to involve significant change in her life. Give me the strength of mind to follow him and character to be a godly woman. I prayed for the strength of character to repent for a sin that at the time didn't feel like sin at all. It felt like life, plain and simple. I prayed that if my life was actually his, that he would take it back and make it what he wanted it to be. The call of God comes to you necessarily, personally, and powerfully. If it is truly the call of God that's come into your life, you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit now, you will not stay the same as you were. You cannot. This is Abram's story. God says, get out and go. And Abram says, where? And he says, I'll show you later. By the way, I'm going to give you a son and through him accomplish all that I promised you. Give us a son, my wife is barren. How? I'll show you later. He's building trust in Abram to the point that one day he'll say to him, go to the top of the mountain and on it, put your son to death. And Abraham at that time will say, why? And God will say, I'll show you later. Just climb the mountain for now. This is Christianity, friends. Hebrews 11.8 says, responding to the call of God, Abraham went out knowing not where he was going. Part of why that's the case always is that the call of God is also missional. It never stops with you, but comes into you that it might flow through you. I wonder how long it was, how long it has been since you took the time and had the God-ordained privilege of sitting with someone who wasn't a believer and in love just entering into dialogue with them. Getting to know them as a human being who already has values and beliefs and issues and ideas and fears and wounds and hopes. And by God's grace, stayed with them long enough that they began to trust you to have discussions about spiritual things. I don't know how long that's been for you, 
But my prayer and what we're going to ratchet up with laser focus in the fall and beyond is that God begins providing those kinds of opportunities to us as we move from being more internally focused through a season of transition to more outwardly focused to hundreds of thousands around our church within a few miles who are absolutely dying, most of whom are dying in their sin, headed to an eternity without God under the veneer of cultural Christianity, believing that they're fine with God because they know a few of the stories, went to church a little as a kid, maybe even said a prayer. Look at what he says to Abram in verse two. He says, I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. You will be a blessing. In other words, God's blessing, and that's, uh, that's nomenclature in the Old Testament for the favor of God. The favor of God, the presence of God is going to be with Abram. Intangible, real, discernible ways so that Through Abram, God might be a blessing to eventually, verse three tells us, all the peoples on earth. All the peoples on earth. It's a missional call. When the call of God comes to you, decisions in your life are no longer based on what's most comfortable for you, what's best for you, what's beneficial to you, but where God can best use you, where God wants you. And how God wants to use you now where you are. See, for the vast majority of us, God is not going to call you to to leave Cobb County or Paulding and go to China like he did Hudson Taylor. Some of you, he may call somewhere else to do some kind of full-time work for him. But for the vast, vast majority of us, God's calling us to faithfulness and to missional living where you are now. Eric Alexander, a great faithful Scottish uh, preacher and minister in Glasgow who just passed away a few years ago, said this, there's no ideal place to serve God. Don't miss this. There's no ideal place to serve God except the place in which he sets you down. There's no ideal place to serve God except the place in which he has you now. We always think one more season And then I'm really going to fully serve God, right? I mean, tell me how many of you think that. We think that all our lives. Man, I'm going to get married one day and with my wife, man, we're really going to live it up for Jesus. And then you have kids. You're like, well, we got kids right now, so we've got to pour a lot of attention into them, and they kind of command a lot of our time and a lot of our money. You think kids command your money when they're little? Just wait. They're going to wreck your world in middle school, high school, and college. Then they get up in a middle school and high school and then their calendars command yours. And you're like, you know what? Uh, I, I, I'd like to teach Sunday school. I'd like to be a group leader. I'd like to just participate in a group. I'd like to go on a mission trip. I'd like to serve faithfully week in and week out in my church. But this just isn't the season for it, right? Man, you're getting your career at a certain place. You're like, I just don't have time for it right now. I mean, I'm doing 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And then one day, your heart's gonna wanna do now, finally, what your body will no longer allow you to do. There's never a perfect season. There's never, God never says, when things slow down for you, just be faithful to me. When things are calm in your life, serve my bride, my bride, my church, the one for whom I poured my blood out. 
It wasn't just for you. I mean, anybody that thinks that's a narcissistic zero, give yourself to me. Give yourself to me where you work. Give yourself to me in your family. Give yourself to me on your street. Give yourself to me in my church. There's never a perfect time or a perfect place. There are seasons for rest. Some of you have been in that. Some of you have been in that too long. You carried a big burden, a heavy burden. Here in this church for a lot of years, you're like, you know what? My time is done. Not if you're not dead. Most of you this morning aren't. Some of you, it's time to get back in the game. You've been on the sideline so long, you've fallen asleep. People are walking over you. Abraham was called to leave the familiar, the comfortable, the place where he had security, influence, and prosperity. If you look at 12.1, he's called to leave his land, his culture, and his family. For some of us, this is the price we pay. Miroslav Volf, in Exclusion and Embrace, says this, the courage to break his cultural and familial ties and abandon the gods of his ancestors out of allegiance to a God of all families and all cultures was the original Abrahamic revolution. In the same way Christians depart from their original culture, Christians can never first of all be Asians or Americans or Russians or Tutsis and then Christians. Christians are Christians first. Church, you're not an American Christian. You're a Christian American. You're a Christian who lives in America now. And as those who've been called by Christ into a redemptive relationship with him, who live with one foot in the kingdom that is to come and one foot in the kingdom that is, we retain our Americanness to a degree, but the gospel's pressing in on that. Just like if we were Chinese, we would, we would retain our, our Chinese culture and heritage, but the gospel would be pressing in on it in ways. Every culture around the world, it's like that. I, I thought about this the other night. Sharon and I were watching uh, a show called, I think it's To Catch a Killer, it might be To Catch a Murderer, but they were, um, that particular episode was profiling um, the manhunt and capture of the railroad killer, uh, a man who had uh, murdered multiple people along uh, railroad lines, many of them in Texas, but around the U.S. And because it was so sprinkled and so sporadic, law enforcement was really having a hard time figuring out who this was and what was happening. Um, because so many had happened in Texas, um, Texas law enforcement agencies were primarily involved. Um, and they had this, this funny uh, scene on there uh, where they were talking about when the FBI was brought in to help. And the primary uh, guy who was leading the task force in Texas, a uh, um, Texas ranger, they asked him, said, was it at this point that you guys decided you needed to bring in the FBI? He was sitting there, he had his hat on, he goes, I wouldn't say we needed to bring in the FBI. Say some of their resources were helpful. And then they, uh, they panned to the, the lead FBI agent who was in charge uh, of their task force, and he said, he laughed at that. He said, oh yeah, he said, absolutely. He said, the, the only people in law enforcement with bigger egos than FBI agents are Texas Rangers. I thought, man, it's not good to have ego. And then I toasted my Texas Ranger on TV there. And I toasted him with a Cherry Coke Zero, so it wasn't very manly. Um, 
but into my heart and my life as an American and as a Texan, um, both of which are obsessed with the powerful and the best and the fastest and the strongest and the top, I have to hear the words of Jesus say, in my kingdom, the first are last and the last are first. It's the meek, it's the meek who will inherit the earth. Call of God is missional. We're called to go out. We're called to give ourselves on our streets, in our jobs, in our homes, in our churches. Finally and quickly, the call of God is costly. The call of God is costly. Um, Abraham messes up a little as you turn over to Genesis 15. He messes up big. He, he heads into Egypt due to famine, tries to pass Sarah, who scripture tells us is a really good looking woman. Um, a- Abram knew it, tried to pass her off as his wife, asked her to just kind of uh, say that. Truth be known, we find later just she was his half-sister, um, which is kind of how most lives work in our lives. We like just enough truth to, to kind of code our conscience, and then we can go ahead and throw the half-truth in there with it. Um, but God remains faithful to Abraham, as we'll see throughout Genesis. Now, keep your finger there at Genesis 15. The call of God is costly. It's costly in your life. As he did with Abram, you truly are called to leave everything. Jesus tells us quite openly in Matthew 16, 24, and 25 that to follow him is to put your cross on, to give up your life, and to go after him. And in giving up your life, you receive a life that you can never lose. It costs you everything. You can't gain your life by holding on to it. Abram left his land, remember? He left his culture. Any of you that ever left a culture know that it's it's an awkward and painful experience to live in another culture. He left his family. For some of you, I'm gonna say right now, for some of you to faithfully follow God, you're going to have to be willing to leave your family. Some of you are going to have to just be willing to tell your family no. No, we're not going to do that because we're doing this at this time. This is a commitment to us. You're going to have to practice some leadership in your family. But you're able to pay that price. You're able to bear that cost because God bared or bore the ultimate cost for you. He paid the ultimate price for you. How, how was God going to accomplish all that he's going to accomplish through Abraham and his descendants when Abraham and his descendants were continually sinful and unfaithful and disobedient? We see in Genesis 15 the account of God coming to Abram. And he tells him in verse one, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why was Abram afraid? Because things weren't going like he thought they were gonna go. Where was his son? Where was the promised heir? Where was the land he was supposed to have? We see him here and God calls him out of his tent under the night sky, out from under the trees to look up at the stars. And he tells him in verse four, look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Maybe tonight you need to go outside when it's fully dark. I know we're Metro Atlanta, so you might see seven stars. Um, 
But if you see a flashing plane, just count that, right? Look up at the night sky and think about the faithful God, the God who fulfills what he promises and does so every single time. And we find verse six, this six that has so, this, this verse that has so captured the greatest hearts and minds in history that fueled so much of the Apostle Paul's writings in Romans and Galatians that led to the conversion of people like um, Augustine and Luther and Calvin. Abram believed God. He believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. And he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. He reminds Abram that he was at work in his life long before his encounter with him at Haran. He reminds him of that initial encounter in Mesopotamia. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? You might be thinking, good Lord, Abraham, what is wrong with you? God's verbally talking to you. He's walking out. He's showing you the skies. But God doesn't chastise him. He says and said, bring me a heifer in verse nine, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram goes out, spends a portion of his day gathering these animals just as God has required. Abraham uh, was already a man of wealth, a lot of animals, a lot of servants, a lot of family with him at this point. Verse 10 says, Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, did not cut, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. Spends the first half a day gathering the animals, then he cuts them in half. Any of you who've worked with animals or agricultural ranching backstock know that uh, it, it's, it's a tough, bloody, hard world. He arranged, you notice God doesn't tell Abram to do this, he just does it. Why? Because Abram understands what's going on here. He knew what to do. He knew that he was preparing for a covenant ceremony when God comes to him and tells him what to get. We've watched wedding ceremonies. We know what's taking place there from the very beginning. And he was right. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. I think so. You spend half your day chasing around wild animals, capturing them, cutting them up and spreading them out just right, and then fighting off vultures the rest of the day, sort of like parenting. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. He was overwhelmed, as the sense here, spiritually with, with this interaction with God. And the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country. God is, God is foretelling their slavery in Egypt and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possession. You remember that? How they basically looted Egypt when they came out? You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. I like that verse. I might write that one on my mirror. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back from there. God's foretelling the Exodus. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. This is the clue to the brutality we see in Joshua, friends. By the time of Joshua, the sin of the Amorites had reached its full measure. And it was required, as God deemed it, for an entire clearing out of the land 
for the chance of a faithful people to begin. Now look at verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord said, or the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land. To your descendants, I give this land. God takes the covenant walk. That's a theophany. That's a a physical, visible manifestation of God himself taking the covenant walk. And Abram had seen covenant walks before, but either both parties took it or the weak party took it, saying, and many of you know this, if I break my promise to you, if I break my pledge to you, if I break my part of the covenant, may this be done to me. May I be killed, may I be destroyed, may my body be cut in half. It costs God everything. As God is passing between these animals with broken bodies and shed blood, he's reminding us that one day God was going to come from heaven to earth to do for us and for all who believe on Christ what we have not been able to do for ourselves and cannot. He comes from where he is to where we are. I was playing last weekend in Blue Ridge with our twins on a playground, and there's two of them, and logic would dictate that they can play with themselves. And I even encourage them to do so. And they do for a minute or two, and then, Daddy, watch this. Daddy, look at me. How many of you remember experiencing that? Daddy, come down the slide with me. Daddy, climb up this. Why? They can do all that by themselves. They can do all that with one another. You know why they ask? They ask because it demonstrates love to them. When I enter their world, the way that they see it and experience it, and I choose to see it and experience it with them where they are. This is part of why Jesus comes. Because what other way was God going to overcome? Was God going to overlook the sins of Abram? And he continues with them. And his descendants, Ed Clowney, Ed McClowney, longtime professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, great preacher and great um, student of The Christ-centeredness of Scripture said this, the answer, the answer to this issue with Abram and his descendants and all people, how could God keep this covenant and this promise to Abram? The answer is not fully revealed until God's darkness shrouds Calvary as it did Abram that night recorded in Genesis 15. There, God the Son bears the curse of his own condemnation, not because he is guilty, but because he takes the place of the guilty. Oh, that God would give you the grace of being able to gaze on the cross of Christ this morning. Such is the final cost of God's oath of grace. That mysterious oath has a dreadful solemnity. It points beyond the centuries of bondage in Egypt beyond the gift of the promised land to the day when God's pledge by his own life would be paid in blood. 
there would come a day, and there did come a day when the blood of God was shed on earth for the sins of man. Jesus, as Jake made reference two weeks ago, came as the true and better Abraham. Jesus came as the one who ultimately left his father's house, who left his space and his world and the family of the Trinity. And he went to a distant land and he rescued us. His blood was shed. His life was given on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of man, sealing this new covenant between God and all who would believe on his name with his own blood. I'll leave you with two verses from 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb, without blemish or defect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are those in this room this morning and maybe those watching online, God, who have never truly heard your call. And I pray this morning that right where they sit, they would. That where they sit, God, by your initiative, by your invading grace, God, they would be able to say, I know I'm sinful. I'm a rebel against God. I'm at war with him. And I'm storing up for myself his righteous and just wrath on me. And may they know God, that Jesus shed his blood for them and reach out as James Taylor did centuries ago and say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord Jesus, I believe. Take my life. Make it what you will. God, there are many in this room who've traveled a certain distance with you and maybe they've stopped like Abram and his family did. I pray that they'd hear your call again. That they would follow again. God, as we prepare to respond to you in worship and communion, God, and through the act of giving, as our offering ushers make their way to their spots, Lord, I pray that it would be out of grateful hearts this morning, God, and throughout this week that we would be a giving, generous people. Lord, knowing that giving is not just an act of obedience. Lord, it's an act of missional living because at the other end of every gift we give is a changed life, is gospel-centered ministry able to take place. Because we, God, out of the generosity that you poured into our lives, by your mercy, can give some back. God, bless those who are about to give. Take all that's given. Stretch it and multiply it. Use it for your glory and your good. 
I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.